Danny. Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction were, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like how many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for, uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, well <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Yeah, well done. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I could never edit that bit out. I could do this. And I was just so comfortable that I was like, I'm all this stuff. It's a special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? Hello everyone, thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. On this podcast we chat about books, the writing process and how literature has the power to change the world. I'm your guest host, Josephine Taylor, an Associate Editor at Westerly, an Adjunct Senior Lecturer in Writing at Edith Cowan University and author of the novel Eye of a Rook. I'm speaking from Wajak Noongabudja next to the Wadan in Perth, Bulu. I'm speaking from... Um, this place, and I'd like to offer my gratitude for Nongo custodianship of this country and pay my respects to elders past, present and future. And today I'm interviewing Australian author Marion Frith about her debut novel, Here in the After. Marion Frith is a former journalist, communications specialist and speechwriter. She's worked for major Australian newspapers in the ABC in Canberra, Sydney and London. She was based for many years in the Canberra Press Gallery. As a journalist, she regularly wrote on the political becoming the personal, how government policy and decision-making impacts individual lives from a social justice perspective. As a speechwriter, she wrote for senior cabinet ministers and has worked for several NGOs on their media campaigns. She lives in Sydney. Welcome, Marion Frith, to the Words and Nerds podcast. Thank you, Josephine. It's lovely to be here. Great, great to have you here and to talk about your excellent debut novel. Um, perhaps we can start by you giving a short description of what the novel's about to, to set it up for listeners. Yes, so this, this novel is the story of a friendship, an unlikely friendship between two very different people. So the two main characters are Anna, Anna's 62, and she is the sole survivor of a terrorist siege that happened in the middle of Sydney. Nat's younger, he's 35, and he's an Australian Army veteran. He's um, served in Afghanistan twice. Both these people are very traumatised by their experiences, and when Nat, the former soldier, 
sees the media coverage of the siege, he becomes he becomes triggered. He feels that um, somehow he has a role in this, that he failed in his job um, to keep Australia safe. So he becomes determined to find Anna. From there, uh, uh, as I say, an unlikely and a hesitant friendship begins and the novel follows that friendship and, uh, um, and the potential healing power of it for both of them. I mean, there's lots of twists and turns, lots of other characters, but fundamentally it's a story of friendship set against a backdrop of trauma. Mm, that's a lovely description and I like the way straight away you've brought in the dark and the light. Um, and I, I do feel that um, this is a wonderful um, depiction of, as you say, an unlikely friendship developing. And it, it's very convincingly done because it is it is in steps, tiny steps. It's incremental and there's drawing back and, and coming together and so on. Um, so I found that really, really convincing. Uh, congratulations on mm-hmm. how well you've done with that and, and with the whole book. Um, well, thank you. That's good. Uh, So this is a very specific book with very specific subject matter. How did you come to write it and why now? It's very interesting that you use the word specific because in some ways I think it is quite specific in that it seems to have an absolute resonance to now, to contemporary events. I'll get back to those in a second. But I think actually it's non-specific in that the themes I try and explore actually are universal. So when we say specific to now, um, Nat, as I say, has, well, he, he's, he's a, um, a veteran and he has complex PTSD. Anna also has PTSD, not surprisingly. And tragic in a tragic coincidence the book has been released just as Afghanistan has fallen to the Taliban and we're actually getting a lot of veterans Australian American British talking about the futility they feel and the tragedy they feel that they for 20 years um, they fought well not as individuals but their nations fought the cost they paid and and Afghanistan, again, is in the hands of the Taliban and women and children have lost all those opportunities. So, yes, it, it does resonate very strongly from for now, but I think actually it resonates very strongly for all conflict. I mean, Anna's experience of terrorism, that's a more contemporary um, scenario, I suppose. And so, yes, it actually does sit absolutely in the now. It does. Mm. Um, well, yes, absolutely. But um, like you say, it's what extraordinary and, and, and difficult timing in some ways, but it does, as you say, speak very much to the moment. But I agree. I think that there is a universality about a lot of the themes here, which could speak to a lot of times in history and could speak to some of the fundamental impulses in, in human nature too. Um, what brought you, you yourself to writing this? I mean, you could, like, we, we all could write about anything. Why did you, how were you brought to that? Yes, it's interesting, isn't it, that I chose this story, but actually this is the story I wanted to tell. So I've wanted to write a novel for a long time and I wanted to write a novel that explored complex emotion. So as a, as a reader, I like to read deep with a little tinge of dark, if you like. I like to explore our bigger emotions 
And the idea for having these sort of characters in this scenario, I've always been interested in the aftermath of war. I've, I've always been interested in that, um, that we send young people to fight to do absolutely terrible things and then we expect them to get on a plane and come home and just get on with life, you know, act normally. So that's something that I've always been interested in and that I've explored in my journalism and in my personal life. I've, you know, I've... Um, I've walked Kokoda and I've visited Gallipoli and I've been to Vietnam, so the sites of, you know, major Australian conflicts. I'm interested in that. But the specific trigger for this was I was standing at the set of, a set of traffic lights in Sydney and I was standing beside a young man who, whom I presumed was a refugee and he um, was carrying very um, severe scars, lacerations on his face and his hands had been very wounded. And he was standing there very passively waiting for the traffic lights with the rest of us and we smiled and I just had this flash of what has it taken for you to survive what you have clearly survived that I can't understand to come here, I was presuming he wasn't born in Australia, to this bottom corner of the world and get to a point where you can just wait at the traffic lights. He had his shopping bag in his hand, he'd bought sliced bread. And that was actually the final impetus for this book, to want to look at how someone who's been through something terrible can, um, you know, begin to assimilate back into a world so that was the final trigger for the book, really. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, isn't it, that it often is one of those real-life kinds of moments that, that really generates that strong impulse, absolutely. Uh, so, well, well, let's talk a little bit about trauma, given that is the, that is the sort of primary subject matter, not necessarily the primary themes, but it does, the novel revolves around this, these separate, though thematically interconnected traumas, as you say, um, his his trauma is re-triggered by uh, Nat's trauma is is re-triggered by Anna's trauma. Um, but I really loved the way um, in which you you demonstrated such an authoritative um, and deeply embodied understanding of trauma, which is interesting because um, trauma itself, as you so wonderfully convey, it can be really disembodying you know, it, it, it kind of detaches you from your body. So I guess that the, the kinds of elements um, that I was really, that I really noticed in this book, in this sort of understanding of trauma would, would be the, the pure, you use the word pure and, and disembodying kind of um, quality of trauma, um, the guillotining of a life into a, into a before and an after, which is, you know, the title obviously refers to that. Um, the inadequacy of ideas around closure and move, moving forward uh, in response to trauma, the, the reliving that sort of, as you say, with, you know, PTSD, it's not just remembering, you're, you're kind of in that trauma in a perpetual sort of present and also you touch on intergenerational trauma so there's a lot you're covering there and and covering very very well I think um and I just wanted to read just a couple of sentences from your books that they really struck me at the time and this is this is Anna very near the beginning of the book um hear this the tectonic plates of your life have shifted and a chasm has been opened no one will ever be able to understand to go where you have been you are alone now. Tell me, how did you develop this very deep understanding of trauma 
Um, and how much research did you need to carry out? Um, I think I have. I have. I have an innate empathy. Innate empathy. I know that. Like I, I, I am an empathic person, so I have an awareness of others' suffering. I do. Um, that's just a fact. So I have the bedrock of that, that I'm interested in other people's suffering. I care about it. I, I, I try and understand it. That's one thing. How did I get into these characters' minds and feel their hurt and then try and help them find light? And I must say, this is absolutely a book about trauma, but it's also a book about hope. I did a lot of research. I... Um, I'm a former journalist. I was a journalist for most of my life. And, of course, as a journalist, you always go to the primary source to get your information. So you will go and speak directly to that source. I made the, the difficult decision, actually, and something of an anathema to me, to not do that. So for a novel, I didn't want to speak one-on-one -on -one with people, with survivors, and get them to tell me their very personal stories and then go away with those and manipulate them. And I, I don't mean manipulate them in a negative way. I mean, change them to, to fit fiction, to distort them, to, you know, pick and choose certain bits of them. I didn't want to do that. I thought that was respectful. And I thought to use the word triggering again, it was potentially quite triggering. So I wanted to do this from an arm's length. So therefore my research was to immerse myself completely and totally in the open source existing material that is out there. And there is a lot of it. There is fabulous, fabulous first person accounts, both as videos, um, you know, video, video records, um, biographies, written accounts, online interviews. There really is a wealth of material. I spent a lot of time at the Australian War Memorial. I just fell into that space. So it was as if I had, you know, a, a, thousand, a thousand people telling me their stories. And when you do that, it's very hard not to get that sort of your own personal sense of empathy cracked right open, you know. So that's what I was doing. I was listening. I wasn't asking questions. I was just listening to voice after voice after voice and watching their faces, admittedly not directly them and me with, you know, a device between us, a screen or the pages of a book or, 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 or a paper or something like that. And so I became saturated in it. And so then I took that away and I just sat with it and I walked with it. Um, a lot of this book is set at a beach and I live near a beach. So I walked that beach with all these interviews I had in my head and my heart. And I just let the, um, the rawness of it, I guess, sort of gnaw at my gut, really gnaw at my gut. And then I came home and sat down and tried to write that. That's a terrific description. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's what I did. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. Um, how how did um, these two, because they, they are, as you say, uh, we have Anna who is 62, yes, 62, and Nat who's... Yep, and Nat who's 35. How, and they, they have very different backgrounds, um, though they're both Caucasian, yes, Caucasian-Australian. Yes. Yes. So how, yes. how did this very sort of diffuse kind of experience that you're talking about of, of listening to trauma um, come emerge into two, these two very different characters? 
I knew I wanted to um, explore the um, the veteran experience. Uh, as, I, as I said before, that's something I'm very interested in. So I knew I wanted to look at that and I really wanted to look at um, the PTSD of a returned serviceman. And let me say then, say now, not every soldier has PTSD. I know that and I don't want to sort of characterise every um veteran as, as being traumatised and troubled, but a lot are. That is, that is the truth. That is the reality. So I wanted to look at that and how a young man, you know, fit and brave and strong, then comes back broken and the struggle of trying to um, work with his brokenness back into his life, you know, and, and do we as a society make room for that and accept that and, and support, support those young people? Um, do we? And then I wanted, I also know, I, I know, I, I'm sorry, I'm stumbling here. I also wanted an older woman as a main character. So a lot of fiction at the moment and, and great fiction is centred around younger women sort of in their 40s, struggling with motherhood and the angst of, you know, discovering who they are and, you know, their sexual encounters and, and trying to form themselves and I wanted a character who was older, who's in her 60s like I am, who um, knew who she was. That was all set. So she didn't have any of this um, external angst about who she was or where she sat in the world or how her relationships were. So I, And I wanted her to be brave and I wanted her to be strong. So I wanted to um, show an older woman that could call on, call on her maturity and the wisdom that she gathered by being older and see if that made a difference to her ability to su survive. And so I, I, I knew I wanted both these characters and then that, that became, you know, the obvious device to have them bounce off each other and, and learn from each other. I think it's an excellent choice. And I know that a lot of these things sort of happen more, more instinctively than kind of I'm going to do this and, and this and this, um, often in our writing. So uh I think that the, the choice, what works really well in that regard too, is that there's, because there's this age and experience difference between them or life experience difference between them, it makes the sort of rapport and intimacy that develops between them all the more convincing because you know that it's based purely on this extraordinary experience that that they have in common and that's the experience of trauma and I, and I would like to talk about about the hope at some point too we'll return to that because it's such an important element in the book um, also I guess so we have these two and we have them sort of isolated and we have them growing closer to each other or starting to develop a, a sense of trust I was very interested in the people around them as well and the ways in which the trauma that they'd experienced effectively cut them off from those closest to them. Could you talk a little bit about the people around, the families around Anna and Nat, um, and what each carries in the narrative? And I'm especially interested in Ollie, who I think is a wonderful <laughs> touch. But So what, what do these characters carry in the narrative? Okay, so as you say, the two main characters, Anna and Nat, they are isolated and trauma does do that to you. How can anyone else possibly understand what's going on in your head? So they're isolated as silos with their grief and their struggle. But around them, 
orbiting them are their families. So Anna has um, grown children. She has two grown children, a daughter and, and a son, and they're both partnered, married, and um, so she's got the in-laws. So there's that the, the four of those. And her daughter, Laura, has a little baby. He's a toddler, really. He's at the beginning of the book, he's 15 months old. His name's Oliver, Ollie, and he actually is key to Anna's... Um, stability the sort of she's she's really unwell psychologically she knows it but she can connect with this infant and he keeps her grounded I mean without him she'd probably float right off and so the adult children are circling and fussing as they would I mean they they are devastated with what's happened to their mother as I think Anna says at one point you know they don't know how to behave they've got no template for this she's come out of hospital after you know almost a month with you know legacy injuries she's traumatized she's distanced so the whole family is sort of fractured and dancing they're dancing around her but with the baby Anna feels a really primal connection in that he asks nothing of her he demands nothing of her he has no expectations of her he's not verbal she doesn't have to talk to him but he is her other beating heart so she can hold him and she is connected to humanity and she's connected to life. So he is very key to her. So he's a, a, a light, playful, sweet child. And when she is alone with him, she can feel a faint stirring of those feelings in herself. So he's, he's like the foil, if you like, to all the darkness she's feeling and the, and the aloneness. He's the foil to that. He's the light and the hope. Mm. So her children, her children really do the best they can, but Anna's actually not going to let them in for reasons that aren't her fault. Mm. Um, Nat is married. He's got a, a young wife. Her name's Jen. And um, she's lovely in that she's incredibly understanding of him. He's a bastard to her, really, in his pain. He he treats her badly. He speaks to her badly. Um, he fails to meet so many of her needs, but he loves her. He loves her, but his trauma is, is a blockage between the genuine love he has for her and his capacity to express it in a healthy way. And I think actually she's a silent hero of the book because she puts up with a lot. And I know there are some readers that say she, you know, she shouldn't, no woman should put up with his behaviour. And whether or not she does is, you know, I, I won't spoil the story. But she has a deep understanding of what is motivating him. And I think that must be very hard for a partner. So she can actually say to herself, my gnat is not bad. He's not a bad man. The war is bad. And she tries to keep that clarification in her mind. So they're actually, the, the, the surrounding characters are key because they reflect back what Anna and Nat are going through and how they're behaving. But conversely, they reflect back to Anna and Nat how they're behaving. So it's a mirror, if you like. Mm. Yeah, so it's a really effective, you know, in terms of actually a book, it's a very effective um, device. So, and, and I agree, I think that, um, you know, Jen, the way in which she's been created, I think it's, it's, um, it's poignant the way in which she continues to remind herself of the past, you know, and 
brings these images back in order to maintain that sense of love. So they had that foundation before he was changed. And I guess, you know, Anna's children have that foundation as well. Um, I think it's really interesting too that the things that seem to give the most solace in the book, as you say, you have Ollie um, and you have uh, animals and you have nature and these things don't place demands upon Anna or Nat, um, and I think that's, again, another understanding of trauma that, that that's uh, when we're at our worst. Um, it's the things in our lives that don't place demands upon us that give us that greatest uh, solace. Um, I'd really like to move on a little bit because, you know, you're a writer and you've made specific choices about certain elements of the book, so style and plotting and so on. So some of, some of the things I noticed, for instance, were the, the alterations in sentence length at particular moments um, to do with traumatic moments, to do with when somebody's thinking something through. Um, so obviously the, the length of sentence is altered, um, delaying, slowing down and speeding up action, the ways in which you've delayed full accounts of the trauma to mm -hmm. later in the book, the interweaving of the Nat and Anna threads. Obviously there's decisions that have been made about all of these. Could you talk a little about these and any other conscious style choices you made? And, and did your background in journalism and speech writing influence any of those choices? I think my background in... Um you know, journalism and speech writing absolutely influenced how I wrote in that I, um, I'm used to writing for efficiency, if you like. You know, you don't waste words. I was, um, as a very young journalist, a very long time ago, I was always told that when you wrote, you had to imagine that every word cost a dollar and you had to save as much money as you could. So <laughs> I, I also know that it's a lot harder to write short than it is to write long. So I'm aware of, you know, the efficiency of words. So in some ways, writing a novel forced me to step out of that space and to sort of loosen up a bit about, you know, I could waste some words and use more words. But I also knew that my story has such um, deep emotion in it, and yes, to say trauma again, and I'm sure I'm putting people off it with all this mention of trauma, that I didn't want to fall into purple prose. I didn't want to overwrite. I wanted the, the drama of the events to sort of stay centre stage and to not lose readers in, um, uh, what am I trying to say, purple prose basically, overwriting too much language, too much unnecessary language. I wanted the description of what was happening to, um, to stand out and basically to be as much description as you needed. Now that said, of course, there's a, there's, there's a lot of description. So that goes to the simplicity of the language, and I have tried to to keep quite a um, a simplistic style. I haven't tried to be clever. I haven't tried to, um, you know, manipulate manipulate the language. That said, I hope it's beautifully written. I mean, I tried to write beautifully within that that confines of trying to keep it quite tight. So the sentence structure is just as it fell, you know, I just wrote the sentences as they fell and I had an internal voice in my head and, and sometimes I needed a very short sentence. So I didn't intentionally set out to use that as a device. It just happened in the flow of language. 
um, the delaying and the speeding up. Again, I wanted that to mirror how action happens, you know, that it might take a long time to get somewhere and then it happens or conversely, you know, it happens and then there's a long aftermath of it. So, again, I wanted to explore that realistically. I didn't want to give the full accounts of what had happened, you know, so there are two key story points, um, both of them, will reveal what they went through. I wanted us, the reader, to get to know these people, to, to have to sort of maybe struggle with who they are, as we do in life, like we form opinions about people and we assess them and we think about them without knowing their story. Once we know their story, how does that then affect those, um, you know, those initial perceptions we had about them? Um, so I also think what what in some ways impacted my writing was I, and I know I know other writers do this, but I read it out loud. So I I read it out loud as I wrote, and the, and that was really informing to me how it worked. I also um, my partner read in, towards the end of the process would read me a chapter a day, and that was fantastic. So I would hear it. And I would hear where it jarred, and I would hear where the sentence was too long, etc. And then I was able to work it back from that. So I think it was quite organic, but with a disciplined mind, if that makes sense. I went into it knowing what I wanted it to look like. And I tried to stick to that. As I say, it would have been very easy, I think, to, to overwrite the drama. So I tried really hard not to. Absolutely no. There's a there's a lovely restraint there. I I really like that idea of having your work read to you. I haven't done that for that. That's such an interesting and useful technique. I'll have to try it. Lovely <laughs> because you hear it. You hear yeah. it, and you also hear where someone else might stumble, and yeah. so then that prompts you to go back and and maybe that comes from having been a speechwriter. I don't know. I've just thought of that because I always used to read speeches out loud, but. If they stumble or look twice, you could then go back and look on the keyboard and think, oh, is that a problem or was just that them? So so yeah. I found that really good. Yeah, try it. No, I will. That's right. absolutely great tip. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so the other thing that you bring up there is that that whole um, idea. So it's an ideas-driven book in, in many ways, yet at the same time, there is an aesthetic appeal. There is, you know, there's some very beautiful elements to it. So um, I guess it is for you there's a balance there as well. What do you mean between the... the well, the... so there's, there's a kind of something you wanted to communicate. There's, there's, I wouldn't say an agenda. I think that's kind of a little bit sort of dispassionate. Obviously there's things you're passionate about, but you also want the book to work as yes. as a narrative as well as something engaging so did you feel that I feel that you balanced that out very well but how did how did you feel about that was that something you were conscious of as you were writing it yes uh, yes I was I so um I wanted I wanted the both these characters have experienced extreme ugliness you know the worst that humanity can can unleash that's really ugly and I knew I wanted that countered with beauty and, as you say, and, and, and innocence of, you know, um, a child and, and animals and, and the natural world because that is true, you know, as ugly as the world is, it actually is very beautiful and it will be beautiful long after we've done all the 
damage we can to it, you know. So I, I wanted that. Then how did I play those two together and not lose a pace and a story arc? I had a really great um, structural editor early on. So once I delivered my draft and she was fabulous and she helped me see how to, to work that pace a little bit, especially at the beginning, you know, to not not just lay it all out there but to give it a tempo to let the reader take a breath after something big and just relax and once that had been pointed out to me that that's a good thing to do you know to 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 give the reader a break and give them a chance to recalibrate and then I think I was able to do that more naturally so yes of course I was aware of it not in the first dumping it down you know that first right but as I was trying to hone it I was very aware of that of how I wanted an ebb and flow I wanted um, the ugly offset by the beautiful the beautiful tarnished by the ugly and that sort of you know um, mosaic if you like of, of style and emotion and and setting. Mm. There's definitely, yes yes yeah. it does make sense and there's definitely that sense and, and, and I think that um, at reading it, there there definitely is that feeling of breathing. Uh, so it's not, as you say, you're not overwhelmed. So the pacing, I think, works well. I also, though, on the other hand, I, I love the way in which, as a reader, we are um, immersed at the beginning, like I'm in that experience with her at the beginning. So I love the way it begins. And, and uh, going back to something you said before too, no, I don't think you overdo the trauma at all in, t- in talking about it. I mean, this is trauma is part of life and um, I think that there's, there's, this book engages people in such a way that you can think about it without it being overwhelming. Um, so going, going back to a little bit to perhaps what we talked about a bit earlier, I, I'm really interested in, in the nexus between the, the socio-political and the personal in the book, and I know that's something that interests you. Um, in the book, it, it's especially in relation to warfare and terrorism. Um, I guess I've got a few questions about this. Who or what do you see as the ant- antagonist in the narrative? That's a really interesting question. I see the antagonist is these, and this will sound purple prosy, these external forces of evil over which we have no control. So unnamed, unspecified, if you like, but that's who it is. It's these, it's evil, it's terribleness, it's, it's, it's violence that is random, that can strike at any time, over which we have no control. So it's an unnamed force, if you like, and both these characters are, yes, Nat goes off to war. You, you could argue that he's, he should expect to see evil, but that doesn't mean, mean you're prepared for it. You know, it's one thing to know that you might see terrible things, but nothing can prepare you for it. And Anna, of course, just steps out one lunchtime. So that... That is what they're both facing. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I liked the way in which it was never, I mean, though this is an act of, you know, the radical terrorism that, that begins and extremism and so on, I never had the sense that any particular group as such or, you know, ethnicity or whatever was, was, was like the antagonist. I guess if I were to kind of put it into something more tangible, I would I would think, well, you talk about the futility of warfare. It's like war, the, the warfare and these kinds of 
levels of extreme um, behaviour around that is is kind of what they're they're sort of tangibly battling against. But as you say, that that kind of evil can enter in into different domains. It can enter into different behaviours. That's right. And I think if you actually took, um, you know, the terrorist siege in Sydney away and if you took the war in Afghanistan away and if you just devoted two paragraphs to writing different events into that, you know, whatever you like, there's sort of a, you know, a bank robbery or a sexual assault or a, I don't know, something, a bushfire, you you actually would end up with similar emotions and responses. So, yes, I wanted those events and I wanted to look at those, but I think where both my characters are washed up at the end is having survived a trauma, something terrible, something that's evil, and um, off they go from there. So when I said earlier I like to think it's got a universal theme, I actually think whatever trauma you've been through, um, you would perhaps find some resonance with what Anna and Nat have both been through. Mm, absolutely. Um, so we've talked a lot about the trauma, um, but I think that ultimately for me as a reader, the book offers ways in which it might be possible to continue after trauma or, you know, this is never pat, I've got to say, in the book. It's really, it's it's a process, it's a road and there are, you know, backwards falling blockages and so on. But it seems to me that there is very much, that's, there's a very much a voice for hope in the book. How important was it to offer hope and possibility as choices that might be made? I think it was really important, and I don't didn't I don't mean to sound glib when when we talk about a choice. So if someone can go, oh, okay, I'm going to choose to feel better, I'm going to choose to recover. No, but I did put choice in there as having a role in that there comes a point when someone can decide, so therefore make a choice to try and make the very first dolly steps back. So it's not easy, but I do believe, and I guess I wanted to convey, there is always a choice. They mightn't be big choices. They mightn't be easy choices. But at the very least, you can choose how how you respond to something. Now, in the context of PTSD, the choice becomes quite small. You know, will I get help? Will I get dressed today? Will I, you know, you know, little minuscule choices that ultimately can come towards a big one. But... I wanted, I think, to have the main choice and the most important choice was to take the hands that were being offered and to reach out for human connection. So it was important to me that these people always had a choice. You know, it's it's not over till it's over. I didn't want it to be over. I wanted them to, to slowly learn that there could be a way to begin, just begin, you know, there's no guarantees, to begin to look at a way out through this hell that they were both living mm. in. That was their choice. But they couldn't do it alone. They had to They had to reach out to the people around them who would help them. Yes, it seems to me that there's a strong advocacy in the book um, for finding, to for speaking with somebody else needs to be the right person 
And obviously there's a lot of resistance to that within the characters Mm. because of the level of the trauma. But would you say that, that you're an advocate for that, that you feel very strongly that that kind of experience needs to be integrated through speaking with somebody else about it? I'm an advocate. I, if I'm an advocate for anything, it's for nobody ever being alone, for nobody mm. ever being alone, especially in their pain. Like, uh, and I guess, I guess that's what I wanted to convey in a way. If we understand what someone's going through, we wouldn't leave them alone, you know. Now, neither Anna or Nat were left alone. They were very lucky. They had families standing rock solid. But they weren't qualified to get them through this. So, yes, I'm an advocate for someone not being left alone and for getting the help they need. Now, for some people, who knows, it might be enough just to, you know, go have a beer with your mates and talk talk, talk stuff every Friday night. I don't know. I doubt it. But for most people, I think, to get the professional help they need through people who are qualified in dealing with PTSD, who can help them understand that this is not the final sentence in their life, you know, it doesn't need to be. It can be a very difficult chapter, but it doesn't need to be the end. So, yes, of course I am. I'm I'm a great advocate of people getting help as a society, us offering that help, of mandating that help, that we just don't leave people you know, languishing. That's a really strong message and, and that's definitely something I was left with. Um, and I think, too, that the, the kind of hope and possibility is also carried by, you know, no spoilers, but there are certain elements in the plot that sort of bring hope and possibility in into both Nat and Anna's lives, um, which is, is lovely. Um, so, yes, as I said earlier, I think that the, you balance the dark and the light really well. It's, it's very, it's, um, it's difficult subject matter. You've done something which is, it's very convincing, but it's never overwhelming. So I think that you, you kind of strike that balance beautifully. Thank you, Josephine. Well, that's a pleasure um, and a pleasure to read. So, I think that's covered pretty well everything I was going to cover. Was there anything else that you felt you really wanted to, to talk about regarding the book? No, I guess just, um, you know, after this conversation, I guess what I'm struck with is, yes, this is a book about trauma. That is true. And someone said to me who, 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 who had read it said, don't say it's a tough book. It's not a tough book. It's a real book. And I think that's true. I think it's a real book. And I was watching television the other night and I, uh, very late to come to Line of Duty, which everybody raves about. And suddenly I'm sitting there with my bowl of pasta watching some poor dude get his fingers, you know, cut off with a bolt cutter, you know, just mainstream television, 7 o'clock. I thought, well, that's tough, you know. And in some ways we are anaesthetised to this terrible violence we see as entertainment every day. You know, anything we watch on telly has, has violence in it that we don't even notice. And so I think the fact that we, well, some people think this book is quite hard is because it's possible it could happen to us. I'm, I think it's very unlikely I'm going to get my fingers cut off in a dungeon with a bolt cutter by some criminals. Who knows? It might happen, but I don't think it's likely. I could go out at lunchtime and something terrible could happen or someone I love could, could be called up to war. So I think that's what the toughness is really. Other than the actual violence, the fact that it's set in the, the realm of, of now, of every day, and um, 
yeah, so that's all I want to say. It's yes, it, 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 there's some tough subject matter, but actually, I think it's more likely that it's real. Yes, and you've actually preempted one of the questions I didn't get to because we're, we're close to finishing. But yeah, that whole thing. One of my questions was how close are these fictional traumatic events to truth, or what could eventuate? And I think that's the thing exactly. There is. I read this book as a very real book, and as something that that is is on both for both Nat and Anna. These are both real and and possible. You know, so this is what we live with, and so that's why it's important to read it as well. I think and survivable and survivable. yeah and survivable. So the very worst can happen, and yeah yeah for all the reasons light on the other end yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Um, so finally, the question that I know that um, is the, usually the, the last question for Words and Nerds podcast listeners is, why do you write, Marian? I write because I had a story I wanted to tell and I wanted to tell this story. So every dollar I have ever earned in my life has come from writing, you know, from another sort of writing. So um, journalism, speech writing, communications, you know, all of that. So any any dollar I've ever got, it's been from using a word, moving words around. This, why did I want to write fiction? I wanted to write fiction because I wanted to tell a story. I wanted to dig deep within myself. I wanted to dig deep in looking at uh, ideas around me and people around me and I wanted to give it a go. I wanted to see if I could get out these characters that had bubbled away and grown in my mind, if I could make them real. Um, can I tell you a very quick story? Have we got sure. a minute? So the day after I handed the book, so I really, I really worked on this, you know, and I, as every as every writer does, and was so enmeshed in my characters. And finally, the time came. You have to hand it over. No more edits. The book's gone. And I felt quite stressed about that you know it was like I'm not ready I want one more go one more pass at it and I handed it in and the next day a friend of mine had um, a medical problem and I went to casualty with them to the emergency department and right in front of me no one will believe this were two people sitting and one was Nat and one was Jen and the physical resemblance I got goosebumps so I'm sitting with my friend who's ill and I see this young man and he's standing up upright and I look at his shirt and he's wearing that shirt and he's got Nat's facial stubble and this woman moves in and she's Jen and I'm not even going to query what the experience was because I'm not a, you know, hooky-pooky person, but it was the loveliest thing and they turned and smiled at me and it was like they were saying, it's okay, we're not perfect, we're on our own now, Nat's here getting the help he needs and it was just the loveliest thing. So oh. I thought, oh, well, I, I brought my characters to life. Here they are sitting in this ER in the chair in front of me. So I guess that's why you're right. So you sort of, you know, create something real. Yes, out of something imagined. What a lovely manifestation. <laughs> very, very, very sweet and very oh, Excellent, yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for sharing that. And thank you so much for being on the show, on the Words and Nerd Pod, Nerds podcast. It's been lovely speaking with you, Marion, and good luck. Oh, it's, it's such a privilege. Thank you so much, Josephine. Like, it's, a, it, it's, it's wonderful. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. We'd love to engage with you on social media. You can find the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, Danny V Books Words and Nerds podcast. You can also subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Stay safe and read more books.